down and give you a chance. What do you want to be when you grow up to do as a job? What do you want to do for a job? I want to be a vet. A veterinarian. Very cool. Artist. Artist. Scientist. Mechanic. Mechanic. Engineer. It's all right. You got plenty of time to figure it out. Um, a fighter fighter. Of course, you want to be a firefighter. I knew that. That's awesome. A policeman. Beautiful. Um, a ballerina. Ballerina. A mom. A mom. That's a good uh, good job. A human body scientist. No, wait, say that again. A human body scientist. A human body scientist. Wow. All right, who else? Who's up here? A framer. What does a framer mean? You frame houses just like his fa- like her father. Very good. A teacher for the deaf. Wow, teacher for the deaf. Man, you guys are amazing. Now, all of these jobs and maybe some more. Come on up here, girlie. You can sit down right here. We've got plenty of room for you. All of these jobs, tell me then if you take some of those jobs or maybe another job that you think of now, what would you do on that job? What does that mean that you do? I'll start right back over here because you said artist, if I remember right. What do you do if you're an artist? Um, I draw pictures. Draw pictures, good. I help animals when they're hurt. Good. I don't mean them all. Okay. I build electronic stuff. Um, I design things. I find out stuff. Um, I'll catch people if they're bad. That's right. If you're a policeman, you catch people if they're bad. That's exactly that's exactly your job. Do you remember what would you do? Um, spray out fires. Spray out fires. That's important. What else? Take care of kids. Um, twirl like a ballerina. If you're a ballerina, you get to twirl. How awesome is that? That's perfect. Okay, what else? Now, if you're, you kind of described your job in when you said, but what would you do? I basically build houses. Very good. I would try to find the cure of cancer that wouldn't kill everybody. Cure cancer. That could happen with this girl. That, that actually could happen. Now, did you guys realize that whatever job you end up growing to, up to be, did you realize that God has a job for you to do? Did you realize that? Now, yes, you do all of those things. You draw pictures. You twirl. You take care of animals. You build houses. You hopefully cure cancer. Those are all good things. But did you know that on your job, wherever you go and do, God wants you to take Jesus into your job. Now, how do you do that? I mean, is Jesus really with you? How does, he, how does that happen? Any ideas? How do you do that? Okay, give me one. Um, he is little and he looks around for you everywhere. Okay, that's good. What else? He's in your heart. That's right. He's in your heart. You get to take him in. Any other ideas? Um, maybe, um, like for my job, maybe I would draw pictures of him. Maybe. I've seen people actually draw pictures of Jesus and tell the story of his life and how he died. One thing we want you to be sure now. Oh, do you have an idea? I'd love to know how yours works. I would combine theology with science of the human body. See, I told you she's going to cure cancer. (laughs) 
That's amazing. Guys, here's what we want you to know. All your parents want you to know this. All the adults in this church want you to know this. That as you grow into your jobs, whatever that will be, you can take the story of Jesus, the story of the Bible, in with you. That's very important. People want to know. They may not even realize they want to know, but they want to know if it's real and if it matters to you. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for these wonderful children, for these great things. May some of their dreams and wishes and hopes and desires come true. May you have other things for them that they could never even imagine that will be astounding. Thank you for the gifts that they have. Fill them with your spirit so they may take the gospel into their world, whether that's school or work someday, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good job. Give these guys a big hand. You guys stand. The year is uh, 30 AD, and you live in Galilee, and you're a fisherman. And you are working down on the seashore with your employees, maybe mending nets. Maybe you've already been out for the morning, and you've come back. So maybe you're repairing some things. Maybe you're taking care of the fish that you caught. Life is pretty simple for you. Uh, it's not very complex. You, um, you don't know much about politics going on around the empire. It's something that you just don't have time to think about. Communication wasn't that great. You, um, you have a family to support. What you know is life is kind of hard. Life is kind of challenging. Life is tough. And uh, you hope and pray that it's a good catch of fish because you have to put food on the table for your family. That's kind of your life. That's the life that you have. And um, you believe in this God, this one true God. We said the Shema today. Uh, the, the Lord is one. The Lord is our God. The Israelites said that. So you believe and so you prayed regularly, Lord, bless me, take care of my family, help me. So that's kind of your life. And then um, um, one day, um, a man comes along who you don't really know who he is, and he says, come follow me. Why would you do that? You're not really sure who he is. You know he's a teacher of some kind, maybe even a rabbi, uh, but you're not really sure who he is. You certainly don't know that he's the Messiah. And so you, you leave everything behind. And you walk away. Why would you do that? What would entice you to do that? Well, at the same time that that happens, you've lived life, you've grown up, so you're a little older in the Roman Empire. You're accustomed to seeing things like crucifixions. And um, you understand that that's how the Roman government takes care of its criminals. And, but you've noticed a pattern that the... Um, the people who are crucified are usually, well, they're criminals, but they're usually the lower end of society. You don't usually see senators and things like that, the wealthy people and the elite being crucified. It's not the way it works, not in your world. And um, it's just part of life. You don't really question it. You don't ask about it. It's just the way it works. And so um, this man comes along and says, come follow me. Why would you do that? But yet, that's what the Bible says happened, right? They left everything. They left their businesses. They left their employees, dropped the nets, and took off. What would compel these simple Galilean fishermen, mostly untrained, 
to, um, to drop everything and follow this teacher who they weren't sure who he was. The um, answer to that question has a lot to do with what was happening within their own culture and what was considered important. You see, if you wanted to be a disciple in the Jewish world, you had to be trained from early on to be prepared for that. The disciples were typically of the rabbis and the teachers. The disciples were typically uh, young boys and teenage years who had been raised from the beginning to, for that career, that line of work, if you will. They had uh, memorized a good chunk of the Hebrew Scriptures. They knew a bunch of it by heart. They were typically uh, middle to upper class. Uh, the Apostle Paul is an example of that, studied under Gamaliel. And so in your lot, where you've been placed in life, you probably never had that chance, and you certainly don't now because you're too old. You haven't been trained. You haven't done all the preparatory work. Um, kind of like what many of you did for your careers. When you figured out what you wanted to do, you took the necessary steps, whether it was a trade school or college or professional school or whatever, some kind of guild, you took the necessary steps to learn how to do it. And so you prepared yourself for your career. And for many of the disciples, this was a career. They earned a living off of it. And that was certainly their desire to become a rabbi in their own right and to bring other rabbis in, or other disciples into the process of learning Judaism. So you had never had a chance to prepare yourself, and yet here you are. A teacher comes along and says, uh, with a twinkle in his eye, I think, I want you to be my disciple. Come follow me. Leave it all behind. And you drop and you do that. Drop everything. You see, being a disciple was a great honor in the Jewish culture. And so these Galilean fishermen, they had honor bestowed on them that they would not have otherwise had. What a surprise that Jesus turned out to be something different than what they expected. Because you see, what they would expect to have happen is we'd go somewhere and find a nice place to study and I'm the rabbi, you're the disciple, I will educate you and you will listen and learn. And... Um, but Jesus didn't do that, did he? He didn't find a nice place to sit down and start talking and lecturing and explaining, teaching. No, he started doing things that were contrary to cultural expectation, very countercultural. Started healing people, started hanging out with lepers, started going and finding lame people, all on the Sabbath, no less. So not only was he um, doing things that nobody expected, but he did things that they considered to be against the law. They weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. That was their interpretation of that. He wasn't afraid to, be unclean, to become unclean. He wasn't afraid that a woman comes up with an issue of blood to touch him. He wasn't afraid to pick up a corpse and breathe life back into this person to bring them back to life. All of those things would make him unclean, ritually unclean. He wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty, if you will, for our benefit. What a surprise to these early disciples who weren't trained in the way of what it means to be a disciple to follow a teacher that surprised them at every turn, that did the unexpected every time they turned around. No wonder they were scratching their heads trying to make sense of it all. It wasn't what they were expecting to have happen, and yet that's what happened. Then in the middle of that, <clears throat> he says one of the most amazing things that could be said. 
If you want to follow along, it's in Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. He's beginning to tell them about what's going to happen to him. He's talking about he's going to suffer. On the third day, they're going to, he's going to die. They're going to kill him on the third day that he'll be raised to life. So he's starting to explain. He's getting near the end of his life now. And he's starting to explain to them, this is what's going to happen to me. Because he wants to prepare them. As well he should. Uh, you prepare your children for things. Um, one of the common things, if you find out that that your life is going to end prematurely for some reason, you, you put things in order. So he's telling these disciples what's going to happen. So Peter, being who Peter is, my hero, took him aside, verse 22, and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Verse 23, get behind me, Satan. Words that you never want to hear Jesus say, by the way. Right? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Why would that be a stumbling block to Jesus? Peter seems to be doing the right thing. I would argue that Jesus' life from beginning to end was one very big temptation. Hebrews 4 tells us that he came and lived life in every way that we did, yet without sin. Philippians 2 tells us that he did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, but instead he took the form of a human. I believe, based on what my, my study of Jesus, that everything he did, he did like we have to do. He did under the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he was the second person of the Trinity, but he didn't raise people from the dead because he was the second person of the Trinity. He raised people in the dead, from the dead because he trusted in the Holy Spirit. He lived life exactly the way we have to live life. I'm not God. So the temptation to turn stones to bread, that wouldn't mean anything to me. That's not a temptation. But it was for Jesus because he was a second person of the Trinity, I believe, who voluntarily did not use those divine, divine prerogatives, those divine powers, while he was a human. He trusted completely on the Holy Spirit. Now you say, but, but, but he did miracles and he read people's minds and he, he knew what was in the hearts of people and all those sorts of things. True. Yeah, that's true. But the disciples all did that after he died too. You don't have to be God to do those miracles. You have to know God to do those kinds of things. The only thing that Jesus did that I can think of that the disciples did not do was atone for sin in his final act. And what did he say? The things I do, you'll do greater things than these. So his entire life from beginning to end was a temptation to exercise those divine prerogatives. Take the shortcut. So turn the stones into bread. Throw yourself off the temple. What's one of the very last things that happened? Your God come down from the cross. Those are all things that he could have done because he was God and he chose not to because he wanted to experience life like we do. That explains things like um, who touched me? I don't know the day or the hour. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, Mark mentions a season of Lent coming up, and we're going to be looking at the 11, seven, not the 11, the seven last statements of Christ on the cross. We'll have seven times together, one of which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So um, during the season of Lent, we're going to look at Jesus' final hour together and spend so those seven times 
just thinking and reflecting on who God is, who Jesus is, and what he did for us. So his entire temptation was to act as God. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to live life just like we did so that it made sense to him, so that he had that experience. Therefore, Hebrews says, because he did that, we can approach his throne with confidence, with grace, uh, knowing that what we'll find is mercy. That's what we'll find, because he's been there and done that. So, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. He could have stopped this, and he chose not to. But then comes the riddle. Then comes the paradox. Then comes the surprising statement in this culture. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now, these disciples would have been familiar with uh, crucifixion. That was the Roman way of capital punishment. They, uh, they would have seen these criminals going from Jerusalem out to the remote parts into the valley where they performed their executions, carrying this heavy cross piece. They would have seen them laboring under this weight to get out there. That was part of the, that was part of the torture. That was part of the punishment. That was part of their philosophy of deterrence. Um, they had probably been beaten and scourged, and so they had very little energy left. And yet they carried this cross beam, this heavy cross beam out. That was their responsibility. No one, no one helped them. And these disciples probably would have been around and seen the mocking crowds. Maybe they participated. So you're one of the disciples. Maybe you participate in that because that's what you do. It's almost a spectacle. Maybe you have enough belief that you don't do that, but yet you're familiar watching them experience the shame, the humili humiliation, the dishonor, the pain, the physical torture of carrying this crossbar out to be executed. Carry your own means of execution out to the hillside. And Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up that cross. I don't think he's talking about, in this context, what he's going to do on the cross. I think that's actually a picture that, that we can see of what he means. He's talking about us. We have to deny ourselves. That means we have to, as Paul said, make one another as more important than ourselves. We have to put people on a higher priority than we put ourselves. So we have to deny ourselves. That's what we have to do. What a surprise. What a surprise that that's what discipleship meant to Jesus because that's not what it meant to the rabbis. This isn't a career path. This is a means of living life. It's not a career path. And it involves dishonor. It involves humiliation from time to time. It involves shame occasionally. It involves torture and hard work, suffering, persecution. It does involve all that. That's what it means to follow Christ. Now, in the context of the whole book, we have uh, three or four groups of people, big groups of people. We have the Jewish leadership, they basically uh, argued, reviled, and eventually executed him. We have the crowds, the people he was speaking the message of good news to, who had the choice to accept or reject. Then we had these disciples that had made a conscious decision to follow him. And slowly over time, they wander away. At the beginning, there's a large crowd. But the sayings of Jesus were too hard. 
They're very hard. And these people walk away. They're not willing to pay the price. They're simply not. But the 12 standing here, 11 of them were. They were willing to pay the price. Church history tells us all but one were martyred for their faith. You cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say you could be a grade B disciple if you don't do this. He says you cannot be my disciple if you're not willing to pay the price. And so people left him. They wandered away. Where are you, by the way? What Jesus was saying is, you're going to have to live a life that goes against the grain. You will be swimming upstream. That's what it means. So today we're going to look at what it means to live out our faith in some accounting. Let me start with a real simple idea. The mission of God. Hopefully by now you're getting used to that language. The mission of God. He cares about this entire creation. He's not forgotten us. That's the good news. He's come back for us. He remembered his promise, the covenant. He remembered all that. Okay, the mission of God is too big for missionaries to carry out only. It's just simply too big. By the way, the mission of the church is too big for pastors to carry out. It simply is. My job is not to do the work of ministry. That's your job. My job is to equip you to do the work of ministry, Ephesians 4. Sure, I do my part. I, I have my own little circle of friends that I react to and minister to and love. Uh, but my primary job is to equip you to live this life of faith, to do the work of ministry. And by the way, equipping, that's the word used of the gospel in the gospels of the mending of nets. It assumes that you're broken and that you don't know how to do it. Well, we got to fix the net, real simply. The tools by which you do your trade. So my job is to equip you. The work of the church is way too big for me to do it. If it's all on my shoulders, there's going to be about four or five of you that are very happy and another couple hundred that are not because I'm not that, I'm not able to do that. My shoulders aren't that big. I'm not God. The best thing that can happen is that we are all pastors. I told Mark that uh, you're an assistant pastor. That's just an employment category. Jude is administrator. It's just an employment category. It determines how we write our job descriptions and how you decide to pay us. No, no, no. We're all pastors. And that applies to you as well. You're all to be shepherds. And so our fundamental job is to help you learn what it means within your world in the context that you live to do what God has asked you to do. It's too big for any one person or small group. That's why he says in Ephesians 3, to God be the glory in the church. Not in the pastorate, not in the missionaries, not in the faculties at seminaries. Nope. To God be the glory in the church. That's you. That's our job. So that raises the question, the fundamental question, is God really interested in what we do, what you do? Because we've created this false dichotomy, this, this separation between what happens in church and what happens out there. And so most of you were raised with the simple idea. It was taught to you inadvertently, but yet it's all part of your life. You were taught the simple idea that our work is more important than your work. All right? That somehow what happens in the pastorate is God's work. That's the holy work of the church. You have the mundane task of raising money so we can ask you to give it. Right? No, it's the opposite. We've got it completely backwards. You tell me, who's more important? You guys that live out there in the marketplace 
day in and day out, reflecting his glory, helping people that are hurting, telling people about Christ, or me, who equips you? Who's got the more important job? You do. So if anything, it should be the opposite. We should be coming to you and saying, you have the holy work. And that's actually what we believe. And we feel very privileged, very privileged to serve you in that regard. When I left the mission field uh, to move into pastoral ministry, it felt like a step back to me. Because on the mission field, I'm sharing the gospel with people regularly. And uh, here I'm doing more equipping. And I had to think that through and make that decision that that was important to do that. So whose job is more important? What you do or what I do? It's what you do. So that raises the question, does God really care about what you do? Does he? Or does God only care for the church? Missions, evangelism, getting people to heaven. Is that all he cares about? We describe Christianity that way, don't we? And I'm going to argue today that it's just the opposite. God cares very much about what you do. It's important. How we answer that question will determine how you live your life. And it'll also determine how we as a church program our ministry. Right? Okay, so where do we start? <clears throat> Let's start with a basic idea. God is intensely interested in the public arena. He's interested in what goes on all around us here. Number one, God uh, created work. It's his idea, Genesis 1 and 2. Remember when we talked about creation that Sunday, creation care? And what did he say? Let us make human beings so that they may rule over the earth. The very first picture we have of God is that he's a worker. He's a worker. He made us that way. The first task he gave us was to rule the earth by serving it and keeping it. We're to work. Work is not the result of the curse. Work is the essence of human nature. We were made for that. What we weren't made for was working under the burden of the curse. How many of you have done something? You've worked. You've planted a, a rose. You've, uh, you've fixed a broken pipe. You have changed a tire. You've, you've uh, raised a child. You've cleaned up a mess of a kid who you know, is sick. You've, whatever it is you've done, how many of you finished something and you just have that momentary sense of satisfaction? Let me see. You got it behind you. You did it. That's what you're made for. Work is the essence of human nature, human life. We're created for this. Work is a good thing. Work is not a bad thing. We are created like God to be workers. And when you look at to, uh, Revelation 21 and 22, you see the nations are bringing their glory and their things that they've produced into the new city to honor the Lord with it. Well, the second thing, first of all, God is a worker. He created work and he made us that way. So uh, he must be interested in our work because our work will continue, by the way, in the, in the new heavens and the new earth. It doesn't stop just because we're there. No, it's just the opposite. But the second thing is that um, he cares about what happens. He scrutinizes all that happens on the earth. I'm going to look in Psalm 33. Psalm 33. We're going to flip through a few verses just for a minute to talk about he scrutinizes what happens. And if he pays attention to the remote details of our culture and life, then he must care. So Psalm 33, he knows and evaluates all that happens. Look in verse 13. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all of humanity. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on the earth. He forms the hearts of all 
who considers, I mean, he who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything that they do. The remotest details are important to God. He created us to live in society. Therefore, what happens in society is important to him. It's not only about what happens here in this building. It's just as important to him what happens at the courthouse, what happens in your life. Turn to Amos if you go to the right. Um, Amos chapter 5. He's especially concerned with what we call the gate. And we'll come back to that, and I'll explain that as soon as we read the passage. Hebrews, or Amos 5.12. Amos 5.12. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts, and some of your translations will say in the gate or in the gates. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Maintain justice in the gates. In every one of these little cities, they were a walled city for protection, so you have the wall and then you have the main gate where people come and go. That was the place where culture happened. That's the place where society met and talked about things. That's where the judges that's met to resolve conflict. That's where business partners came and owners, and they transacted business right there. They sold things back and forth. So the gate of the city was a very important place. That's a place where all the business happened. Economics happened. That's a place where people made money. It's a place where they lost money. It's a place where they fulfilled covenants. It's a place where the judges all sat and the elders of the city, and if there was a conflict, they could just walk right over and get it resolved right then. That was what was happening at the gate. And so God is very concerned about what happens at the gate. Well, 100 years ago in our small towns, that was what we called the village green in the smaller towns, where people would meet in the middle of the city and talk about things. Uh, maybe they met in a local bar or restaurant, and all the townspeople got together and and if there was a conflict, they would convene a group of a jury of, of peers and say, you know, we have a conflict, Ward and I, we need all you guys to come arbitrate. So here, we're going to present our cases and you help us figure it out. All that happened right there in the local center city, city of the center, to uh, resolve conflict, to do business transactions, the village green. So today, where does that happen? Happens in courthouses, happens in hospitals, it happens in our culture, spread out all around us because we've gotten so much bigger and so much more complexity. But the same principle applies. God is concerned about what happens in the gate, the public square, the village green, the courthouse. He wants to know. He wants to know that fairness is being done. If you jump over to Amos chapter 8, just move over a couple chapters to chapter 8. He listens to the secret conversations of corrupt business people. Verse 4, Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended, that we may make market wheat? So they're hoping the Sabbath is over soon so they can get back to making money. Skimming on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, Buying the poor with silver and the needy with a pair of sandals. Selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Does God care about what you do? 
Absolutely. Does he care about what happens in our court, our town hall, and our hospitals? Does he care? Yes, he does. This is his creation. It's not that what happens here is more important than what happens out there. That's not it. What happens out there is very important. What happens here is we come together and worship him for equipping to go out and live life out there and do it well and do it right. So God is very interested in the public arena. But he's also interested in missional engagement. Think with me just for a couple of things. Number one is he put some of us in positions to serve in the government. Praise God, I hope he raises some of you up to run for government. I, I'll vote for you, all right? Joseph, a slave. Daniel, a prisoner. Esther, a sex slave. What do they have in common? They all ended up in top positions in pagan governments. Very top, very high level, second in command in, in pagan governments. What do we learn from them? Well, while they were forced into exile, they accepted the realities of their new governments. They didn't complain. They said, this is where we are. God has put us here. God is sovereign. We accept the reality of that. Secondly, they worked constructively and conscientiously for their new government. They didn't undermine the government. They worked hard for the government. But they also worked for social benefit to make culture better. And thirdly, they preserved their integrity through the process. When they were asked to do things that they felt violated their conscience, they said no. So they went to lion's dens. They were thrown in the fire, in the furnace. They were put on the potential chopping block. Esther, if the king gave her a thumbs up, he listened. Thumbs down, she's executed. It's pretty simple. They preserve their integrity through the process. Romans 13 tells us all the governments are placed there by God and they are his servants. Be very careful about complaining about our government. Because Romans 13 makes it very clear. No authority is established except that which has been established by God. You may not like what our government does, but you can be assured that God is sovereign and in control. Romans 13. By the way, when Paul penned those words, Nero was the emperor. So be very careful about criticizing our government. Pray for them instead. Do everything we can to make it good for our government. We're commanded to pray for the governments. 1 Timothy 2. We're commanded in Jeremiah 29, 7 to seek the welfare of the city. And by the way, the city that he's telling them to seek the welfare of, that's the city that he's kicking them out and deporting them to. When I kick you out of the land and deport you to Babylon and all these other places, begin to pray for and work for the welfare of the city. Put the city important. Make them important. Um, that's important to us. By the way, on March 3rd, you've heard me mention it, March 3rd is a Monday night. We're going to have a community night. and We've invited the leaders to come in, meet with the elders and the staff and and, uh, and any of you, you're all invited to come. So we've asked the police chief, fire chief, mayor, several other people, Jude's doing all that, to come in and answer, and tell us about their areas of challenge that they're facing, and then answer a couple questions. Number one, how can we pray for you as a church? But number two, if we were to be able to divert some resources, either money or ourselves, how could we possibly come alongside and help you? We want to seek the welfare of this county, don't we? Because this is our home, and that's one of the ways that God honors himself. He cares about this county more than we do. So let's ask a question as a church, which we're going to do Monday, March 3rd. So if you want to hear those conversations, come sit in. It'll be great. It'll be fun. Um, we are commanded. Uh, God is also interested in missional confrontation as well. 
not simply passive engagement. He wants us to be actively involved, but he also wants us to stand up for truth. He wants us to stand up for the marginalized. He wants us to stand up for falsehood, things like that. We're called to be different, Leviticus 18. Matthew 5, the whole Sermon on the Mount, we're called to suffer. We're called to be salt and light. We are called to let our light shine, not hide it under a bushel. 1 John 5, we're called to resist idolatry. It's okay. It's okay to stand up and say, this is not right, what's happening. And we are going to take a stand. We have a voice as a congregation, don't we? The redeemed have a voice. So when we see ethical issues, let's stand up. When we see people being mistreated and marginalized, let's stand up and say something. When we see things not being done the right way, let's confront. Let's confront this culture in this county. Let's go down to the mayor and say, we don't like what's happening. That's okay to do that. So we have these responsibilities because God, and the reason is God cares about this county. You've heard me say when you come across an unbeliever, you can be sure of two things. He loves them more deeply and passionately than you do, and he's been involved in their life a lot longer than you have. It's true of the county as well. This is important to him. Is God interested in the way we live our lives? Absolutely. Are we willing to deny ourselves and live that way? You have to answer that question. So this is the, we're coming to the end of the story that we find ourselves in. Next week, we're going to wrap it up. We are people who praise and pray. Look where we've come. We are worshipers of the one true living God. We are caretakers of creation. This is important to us. It's our home. We are a blessing to the nations. We've been blessed so that we can bless the people around us. We are to be redemptive with others. God redeemed us so that we can help others along that redemptive journey, those who are broken and hurting and need our assistance. We represent God to the world. God chose to use us. We are witnesses to the living God. Our very lives and the things that we say and do are testimonies. You either witness for God or against him. We are witnesses. We proclaim the gospel of Christ. So you see how we've whittled it down to yes. We actually proclaim the gospel of Christ. And we are believers who live and work in Summit County. This is our world that we live in. And we should live our lives in such a way that we deny ourselves and take up that cross and we put him first, and we put others first, because that's what he did. He put your neighbor first when he died for them. So we should do the same. What would happen in Summit County if every Christian took Jesus' words seriously to deny themselves and to be salt and light? What would happen? That's the story we find ourselves in. That's the story. From Genesis to Revelation, from creation to new creation, that we find ourselves in. God cares about this creation very much. What does it look like for us to deny ourselves? Take up that cross, suffer whatever humiliation and shame comes along with it, and tell people, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take an offering. Let me just say, as I always say, thank you. We are grateful for all of you. You make it possible for us to do church. Thank you for that. You make it possible for us to equip you. You make it possible for us to help people. And uh, we love you dearly. So thank you for your generosity. The Lord is good. Let me pray for this offering. Father, I do pray for this offering. Thank you for blessing us, being generous with us. 
Lord, thank you for giving us work to do, for giving us a mission to give us a task. Father, thanks for the people that you've brought to our church. They are generous. I pray that you would bless them, Lord, because of their financial investment into the, what we do here. Help us, Lord, to, uh, to seek the welfare of Summit County even more than we do. I know we're very involved, but help us to even be more involved in strategic ways. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.